man, 2020, what a damn shit show. Thanks to the amazing folk at Bella Catering who have survived the COVID-19 outbreak in Australia as we are starting to wake back up for sponsoring and bringing us this week's show. If you guys want to cater and you're in Oz, bellacatering.com.au. Catering doesn't mean planning a huge event. It might just mean that for the first time in many months, you've been able to have a stack of your friends and family over and who the hell wants to cook? You're probably doom scrolling through your Twitter, shitting bricks that now North Korea is firing off shit at South Korea. Go to bellacatering.com.au. Get off Twitter just for a split second. Thank you for listening. Bellacatering.com.au. Now, all the President's Minutes. Well, they, it, uh, the story started on a Saturday, so that means that you, your uh, uh, big shot reporters like their weekends off, so that you have the the uh, the youngsters are generally in there Saturdays and Sundays, and that was true uh, for this for this story. And uh, two uh, Woodward and Bernstein were two young uh, metropolitan reporters who were working that day. I mean, that is that is how they got the assignment. Uh, what they did with it was something else. Uh, and uh, they, uh, uh, I mean, it turns out that the story was always there if you knew what, what it was and, and where to find it. And they uh, started uh, digging. And, uh, uh, you know, there were so many signals along the way. When, when uh, one of the burglars whispered to the judge that he was worked for the CIA at one point, that was extremely important. CIA is big in this town. If the CIA is involved, that immediately the years go up and everybody's interested. Uh, they had new crisp new $100 bills in their pocket. That's unusual, you know. Uh, if they're looking for something, uh, they, they, it's generally money. And uh, here are these guys are all loaded with money. Uh, the the, the um, burglary took place in the party, uh, Democratic Party headquarters. That's unusual. Uh, and, they, you know, it's doubtful that they were after money. They were after something else. What? We didn't know. Uh, then uh, uh, always these stories focus on money one way or another. And uh, the, the, uh, the uh, one of them, I think it was Woodward, uh, Oh, no, Bernstein went down to Miami and traced the money, actually traced the money to $25,000 uh, of the, you know, got the serial numbers, new Chris serial numbers, and they traced it to a bank who had, uh, 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 it was the fruits of a check from the committee to, to the committee to reelect re the president. That sort of put it in uh, politics. And uh, within a matter of four or five days, it was, uh, it was no longer a two-bit burglary, as people said. It was a political story of, uh, with enormously interesting unanswered questions. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. 
uh, it's a thrill whenever I get to talk to filmmakers on this show. Um, you know, it, this has been such an intersecting dialogue about journalism and about cinema and our appreciation of it. But it's really cool when you can talk to a filmmaker and especially cool someone who is as talented as my guest today. Uh, you would know him from writing and directing Golden Exits, also his incredible Queen of Earth. Uh, but really, uh, you know, his. I think it's now 2018, 2019, depending on where you are in the world, you might have seen it in either of those years. Uh, his film, Her Smell, uh, which starred Elizabeth Moss, this sort of Shakespearean uh, five-act, uh, you know, absolutely soaring, swelling, chaotic mess of a movie about the rise and fall of rock stardom and then the redemption uh, is just absolutely terrific. I think it's his best work yet. And so it's a real treat for me to welcome not only a really talented filmmaker, but a huge Alan J. Pakula fan, Alex Ross Perry. Welcome to All the President's Minutes. Thank you. Thank you for the lovely introduction. <laughs> you are welcome. Thank you so much for being part of the show. Now, before we get started um, on on our minute, which is a fantastic minute of, of the film and, and, and all those things, can you talk a little bit about for folks um, who, who might not realize, but you're a big Alan J. Pakula fan, and I'm just keen to sort of, if you could sort of synthesize what, what really draws you to his work. Well, I think it, it started, you know, at this point, probably 10 years ago where I don't even, I'm looking at his filmography now and I'm trying to remember what single film really set us off on this. But, you know, you have with this, with this director kind of uh, an early and, and kind of totemic three films, yes. uh, Clute, Parallax View and All the President's Men, which I would argue, you know, are to date, probably the three films for which he's best known. Yes. And with good reason, three great films. Um, probably my order of preference, President's Men first, Parallax View second, Clute third of those. But then after that, you know, like a lot of people, he, he has a career that passes through many eras of Hollywood, always Hollywood, not kind of in and out of the system, not an independent filmmaker, always working, you know, with studios of some kind and stars of some kind and money to some extent. And that, that I find compelling. And I, it's just at some point years ago, um, my wife and I realized that his entire, the rest of his body of work was unknown to us. Sophie's choice, of course, you know, kind of maybe his last fully, uh, you know, successful, Oscar-y, whatever movie. But we just went through a phase where we were watching uh, Presumed Innocent and The Pelican Brief and Dream Lover and all these movies that kind of is it, just a classic like, oh, I didn't realize that this Harrison <laughs> Ford thriller, I didn't realize that was the same director as All the President's Men. Yes. And then watching it in that context and all the others, you're like, Oh, these movies are all really similar, even though, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the circumstances change, but he retains a lot of the same crew and department heads and a lot of the same stylistic touches. And there's just a certain quality to, as we found kind of, I haven't seen every one of his movies, but as we found watching nearly all of them, there's just a quality to his work that is kind of undeniable and of course, what that means is that he's not that 
popular historically because he's a, a simply clean and great craftsman, but he doesn't have that kind of cult of personality that leads filmmakers to continuing to have whatever kind of exciting reputation 15 year olds looking for directors <laughs> to worship can latch on to, <laughs> which is, which is curious because, you know, the three films that I mentioned, I don't think any discussion about the, you know, the, the, the dominance of American cinema in the 1970s could be taken seriously without, without highly favoring those three films. And if he only made those three films, he would be important, but he's not now, nor was he ever part of what we now think of, you know, almost 50 years later as the classic young gun seventies American film school directors. No, he was, you couldn't, he wasn't part of that. The film brats that they called them for a little while. He wasn't part of that, that crew. Uh, he he's no, not at he's, all. he's operating with them, and he's you know that peak three that you talk about that is that is central to New Hollywood. It's the reinvention. But I think you nailed it, Alex, when you said like this is a guy who has been very much operating from within the studio system, and while all those other guys that get talked about more often, some of them are like dug into the studios too. It's about how they emerge. How they emerge into that system, how they get in there. They're sort of like, I don't know, the, I don't, the law around him feels like um, that it's, he seems to be like this forgotten guy, but all of those filmmakers now later on in their careers and lives are all great admirers of Mr. Pakula's work. Like that, you know, uh, even I had the great Liz Hanna, who's, you know, wrote, co-wrote The Post and, uh, long shot. She was on the show, and she, you know, told a first-hand account of when Miss Spielberg was shooting the post. You know, Liz was on set one day, and he was setting up a shot, and she's like, "Wow, this is such a cooler shot right now." And he sort of put his hand on his heart and was like, "Thank you." You know, so these guys admire him. It's so strange that he just doesn't have that. Like you said, I think the cult of personality must be everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure his hand on his heart was very meaningful. I am also certain that unlike me, Spielberg does not have sterile cuckoo and dream lover on VHS. <laughs> uh, both movies that at least last I checked were not available in any other format, but that, I mean, that's kind of the thing. I, I, you know, his, that meaningful connection that he was sensing and certainly deliberately cha channeling on that film is just from all the president's men and to a somewhat lesser extent parallax you include as well. Mm. And, despite the fact that the guy continues to create to me kind of meaningful and interesting and exciting Hollywood cinema for decades, those are the movies that are kind of an Island and you can't talk about them without talking about, you know, you put them in a series with the conversation or you know, blowout or French connection or any of these other kind of 70s things by an entirely different type of filmmaker. And that makes sense as a double feature or a series of 70s paranoid thrillers or, you know, uh, whatever you want to call them. And yet that's not who he was. That's not what he meant as a filmmaker. But for, you know, five or seven years, they were just kind of on the same trajectory in terms of what the culture was looking for, how movies were looking, what audiences were willing to accept and, you know, kind of changed 
the perception to, to the present of what any you know, an investigative thriller would look like in a way that, you know, by 2017 or whatever, the post, you cannot escape the shadow of these films or of all the president's men specifically. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's so hard to, it, it's almost the impossible task, right? There are so few films that can actually do it when you're making something that is adjacent to a classic, even adjacent to, you know, sequels or sequels and reboots are enough are, are problematic as they go, but making something in the shadow or something else like that, it's just like, oh, why are you even touching this? It doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't feel the same. Stop, you know. And uh, it's it's one of those things. But yeah, I, I think you're right. There's like there's something about that three pronged president's parallax clue that that just appealless um, in in that paranoia genre. And like like exactly like you said, if anyone was having a, a dialogue about what seventy what American cinema was in the 1970s, and didn't mention those, they kind of failed. You know, it, it would be a complete failure. But if you were talking about important American directors of the 1970s just as human personalities and you could easily not mention him. Absolutely. And in the way that there's some, some of those kind of massive films that do not belong to a, a Spielberg or a Scorsese or a De Palma or a Friedkin. Um, there's just, you know, some kind of oddballs in the mix, <laughs> but uh, of titles, not of bodies of work. He just—it's just a weird thing that I, I like because it doesn't happen that often. No, in in film history, to have someone who's worked—you know—and again, these are all among his first—you know—four or five movies, essentially. Uh, who just kind of starts in tandem with people that are not his peers. He's, I assume, older than all of those guys at the time. Yes, and then briefly, they're all looking at the same. They're all being inspired by the same movies and the same world events, and they're working with the same cinematographers or what have you. And then by you know, in the end of the seventies, they've all gone in completely different directions. Well, let's before we go off into a different direction. Let's go off in a different direction to this minute. It's the sixtieth minute. We are an hour in officially of all the president's men, and uh, it is a a great scene, a great minute of the film because it's a tr- a, tr- a trudging through the newsroom and arrival to Bradley's office, d- the delivery of a monster of a line. Um, I'm so excited to share it with Alex. So we're going to listen along to this right now. Um, you guys okay. and uh, you guys are going to listen along too, and then we're going to come back and talk about it. It's the hottest item. It's in over 500 papers. What is it? Yesterday's weather reports for people who were drunk and slept all day. <laughs> Send it out to the San Francisco Chronicle. They How about it. the crossword puzzle? No, no. Anagrams? No space. No space. For me, it was the obituaries. Make them buy something, will you? All right. Hey, what do you guys want? The GAO reports due out the morning of Nixon's renomination. Hey, sit down, sit down. Well, that's two weeks from now. It's just orally responsible to Congress. There is no way the White House can control the investigation. There's a source over General Accounting that tells us that there's a whole rat's nest of illegal shit going on over creep. Like what? Like a slush fund. Hundreds of thousands of dollars of unaccounted for cash. Hundreds of thousands of dollars? Any comment from creep? Yes, unavailable for comment. They're not talking. Well, what else beside the money? Where's the goddamn story? The money's the key to... Is there anyone like Jason Robards 
in modern movies, Alex Ross Perry? Modern, um, <laughs> like a like a salty character actor who also kind of is a a you know Titanic stage presence. Supposedly, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I don't know for I never saw him on stage, but that's his reputation. Yes. Um, God, I don't know. I mean. Uh, maybe like, uh, I mean, this is not this because Robards has a real kind of patrician kind of, you know, waspy American quality to him. Yes. But which I feel like is kind of the key to him, but in the way of the sort of, you know, uh, John Updike, John Cheever literary feel of him, you kind of buy him as a completely, you know, South drunk out of his mind fellow <laughs> in a heartbeat if that's if that's what he's going for <laughs> yes um i'm gonna think about that i don't know i mean yeah you kind of for some he's reason just, the first thing that came to mind is willem dafoe just because of his sort of the voice you something about the voice and the presence you know you just he, he will ensnare you yeah i think i think dafoe i maybe, think dafoe's obviously weirder but you know like <laughs> yes it's just, it's, it's, it's just robards is a real i mean he's just dignity personified even though you buy him as you know a, a miserable piss drunk guy yes totally it's a great little minute it's a great scene we get the beautiful magisterially perfected uh uh washington post newsroom in its full glory in burbank this great sort of moving camera scene these guys coming into the office watching bradley and sussman sort of negotiate with this guy trying to sell him a crossword puzzle and and, and make a couple of jokes take a little 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 bit of a jibe at the old san francisco chronicle on the way out and mm-hmm. and well, then- we, yeah so i mean i mean how much do you want to like really like oh no talk let, no, I mean, obviously, let, every every installment could be different. Let all, all I would say to you, Alex, is I usually like to sort of give a bit of an overview of everything that we've seen, and then just like dive into wherever you want to talk about. It. If you want to unpack this in a million different ways, I, uh, I, and the, anyone who's listening to the show right now are absolutely ready. Yeah, well, it's not not a million, certainly, but I, you know, obviously, you play play the audio, but it's worth you know just kind of for somebody who's maybe just listening to it on the go. The, the sort of, before you skip over it, you know, I have here, and again, you very graciously provided me with a pretty, pretty incredible minute of, of storytelling here. <laughs> Obviously, the, uh, the shot that this begins on of them kind of, we only, we only get about four seconds of it um, before they're out of the newsroom, but that yeah, obviously that probably began at the end of the previous one, but it, it's kind of you can't really overstate the effect of that visual language of the American newsroom still resonates. And obviously it'd be hard to, you know, this could go back to the thirties to you know, his girl Friday yes, or, or something comparable, but to see it, I mean, you know, there, there's endless examples of what that could be of the American newsroom. And I do remember at some point, probably 10 or so years ago, film forum here in New York did a series that was in Whitney, which was the, I think the most, the most recent time I saw this movie projected uh, on 35 millimeter in the theater, a series that I think was just called like the newspaper movie or something. So it was just like a whole series of that. But, but this iconography, the way that this is depicted with the sort of, and again, the post, you know, copies this faithfully and lovingly, but just the sort of, you know, forties design of this building now made scummy and crowded with 30 years of paperwork and the, everybody at the typewriters 
and the sound of the typewriters clicking whenever you see a shot like this and anything. Um, I mean, you can, you can smell the ink and you can really, and you know, the, the six hour old coffee, this is just, <laughs> I think one of the most effortlessly evocative types of locations in American storytelling because of our belief in the press, at least certainly up through around the time of this film's making. And you, you, you always kind of get high off of it when you see a location like that kind of a newsroom in anything. Yeah, there's, it's, it's everything. I think you, you nailed it of like, you can, it's, it's, there is an order in there. There's an order, but you know how much the paper on those desks haven't moved. You know, you can feel the stains on the coffee on the coffee cups you can see how many drafts have gone through you can see this this different levels of movement that are happening all all of these characters and like you said it's so damned evocative it's 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 time and place it's the wardrobe and you just it's an intoxicant because you just get caught it feels like you know i think on classic movies or when you've got plenty of time to sort of do whatever you feel like doing you can kind of go oh, i'm gonna Rewind this scene. I'm going to look at this guy's outfit. I'm going to look at this person's wardrobe. I'm going to check this guy's haircut. I'm going to see, you know, I know the focal point of the scene is Redford and Hoffman, but I'm just going to get caught up in all of the the business of this scene. And I, yeah, newsrooms, particularly in this new newsroom and in and in the 50th episode of this series that folks are going to listen to, uh, Kenny Turin, uh, great LA Times film critic who actually worked for the Post during the Watergate, uh, the entire Watergate coverage, um, talked about seeing a, a, a screening of this film after a long time, an anniversary screening, and him feeling like he'd travelled through a time machine when he was watching these scenes in this newsroom. So the iconography is real. The mythological uh, level of, uh, of specificity and authenticity of this scene is real. It's um, and, it, and, and for this minute, it's only four seconds of what we see, but it's, it's so... It's it's like the best establishment shot you could ever hope for. No, it's it's very exciting, and you know, like a lot of spaces, kind of only now exist in the uh, in the in the cultural memory because obviously newsrooms are different or have been decimated <laughs> yes. by, by by you know various changes in the industry. But before you know, breathing past it, it cannot be overstated. Um, just how exciting the the sweep of that is. Yeah, it's such a great sweep. It's beautiful. And then, you know, and then the thing that kind of happens, which I know, you know, I have 17 seconds written down of Bradley, Martin Balsam, and whoever this other guy is just kind of <laughs> shooting the shit. Yeah. I mean, this is like, a, I mean, we're cutting in on a total non sequitur. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and, and I, I, you know, Martin Balsam does not say or do anything in this entire clip. I mean, he's just, he's kind of like the scenery. Yes. Um, but, but, you know, just a guy like that, kind of sitting around uh, sleeves rolled up middle of the day, like some old timer. Uh, it's, it's very undeniable. And, and, you know, he's kind of like almost just like the same ancillary guy on the margins here that he is. And on the waterfront, he's just like, <laughs> yes. he's just a guy who's to the right of the main character. <laughs> I don't know if and that's how I, I don't it's know. It's, 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 he's, he's amazing, but it, I just, I was just laughing because I was imagining his agent selling him the selling him the part. Now, listen, you just like on the waterfront, you're going to be that guy who's on the right of the main guy for the whole movie. That's, that's going to be but, you. Yeah. Again. Well, but, Speaking of, you know, his agent calling, 
I don't know. Have you done like a little Baltham sidebar on any episodes yet? No, haven't. L- please do. Let's I mean, do his it. 1976 here is, I mean, this is insane. 1976, all the president's men, Maud, meet him and die. I don't know what that is. Uh, it looks like a spaghetti, uh, Polizio Tesci, Italian cop movie. Um, uh, Death Rage, which also looks like an, uh, an Antonio Margheriti. Okay, another Polizio Tesci movie. Two Minute Warning, which is a movie about blowing up the Super Bowl. Yes. Uh, and then a, a TV movie called Raid 2 and TV. Um, so, I mean, you know, this is like one of seven credits he has in 76. <laughs> and yep. then... You know, oh it looks like every year, you know, the seventies and maybe even seven, beyond. His seventies is scary. Like, well, he's catch- always. It looks like every year he's in one iconic masterpiece. Yes, be it this taking a film one two three something like that. Um, well, he's and in, then he's and in like, like five other and he's in five other things. Yeah, five other things, and then he's like he's got like Catch Twenty Two, Tora Tora Tora, Little Big Man, and you know um, exactly as you said, the Take Him a Pelham One Two Three. Uh, then he's in yeah, then he's in Presidents, but like a ho- whole bunch of little movies in between. He feels like you know he feels at home. Um, he, he he feels at he feels at home like one of those guys in the uh, the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood era. Those guys, sure. Well, you know? obviously, we see him here doing the Italian cop movies. <laughs> yes, the Italian cop movies. By the way, it seems here I, I should correct myself. I said the Two Minute Warning is a movie about blowing up the Super Bowl. That's Black Sunday. Two Minute Warning looks like a movie about a sniper at a Super Bowl. Ah. Uh. Or a football game. I'm confusing my kind of. Uh, <laughs> you are you, know, bu- you are building another dis- alternative dis- disasters at the football stadium <laughs> movies. The Black Sunday, Black- I think, is based on a book by the Thomas Harris, who wrote Silence of the Lambs. But Black- regardless, both Black both Sunday, Two Minute Warning, The Last Boy Scout, all things that happen at football games. Um, some of them ancillary. So we've uh, yeah, that's, that's terrific. But regardless, he is, you know his 76 is pretty. Pretty great here in his presence in this scene, which is, you know, kind of neither here nor there, along with these 20 seconds spent, you know, talking about putting the weather report for yesterday in the paper for people who were drunk. Like, this is all well and good. But then it's just kind of, it's kind of funny that, you know, we get to we get to uh, I have here uh, seconds 29 and 30 before Bradley says, sit down. Yes. And then everything else, essentially, you know, what we're going to talk about and the sort of introduction of the narrative propulsion and the money and all this is, you know, we're talking here about only one minute, but the real meat of this is actually in the back half because we've gotten halfway through and we've had nothing but a glorious four second establishing shot. And then 20 some odd seconds of Bradley and his guys just kind of goofing around. Absolutely. And that, I think it's, I, I like the mix. I like the mix of this scene because it's like one of those things where Bradley up until this point has been so kind of this like totemic character, even, even when they're, even when they're going through the newsroom deliberations about where the story's going. And this is, you know, he is more serious. He's, he's very charming and things like that, but this is where he's sort of a bit unguarded. And then he moves in, like you said, it's 21 seconds before he's with the boys. And then it's like, sit down 30 seconds. Let's actually talk about it. And, and, and Tell me where this thing is up to. Tell me where this thing that has been a headache for me, that has been a thorn in my side, has been up to. And yeah, but it's also it's also. I mean, the other thing about this, and like, I assume this is something that has you know has been or will be gone over throughout. But like, the idea of cutting in an hour into a movie when things are heating up it, 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 into seventeen-ish seconds of 
the you know third main character essentially just kind of shooting the shit and, and you know making <laughs> jokes with some coworkers is very unwilliam Goldman who you know would always advocate for you know sort of idioms like uh, get in late and get out early yes and things like that of his little tricks of writing and this is the complete antithesis of that that this is getting in entirely too early and yet for some reason the color that this provide it's weird i feel like people misquote goldman's idioms because he said so many of them but he breaks his own rules all the time and when you see 17 seconds taken up by just bradley kind of talking about nothing just laughing and goofing and having a good day at the office before our guys walk in that to me is kind of the the crux of his writing but he but he claims that you don't do that he says not to do stuff like that but he but, <laughs> but he can get but away it, with and, then, it. and then people and then people quote it and say you know you can't start a scene with a third of a page of some guy trying to sell bradley on something that's a waste of space we need to get to the plot but he he does waste that space but it's not a waste it's really valuable so it's sort of a strange a strange catch-22 of uh of the way he 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 writes I think you've you've nailed it perfectly. I think later on for folks, I can sort of tease an episode, an upcoming episode, episode 76, or sorry, the episode for the 76th minute uh, with Mr. John Borston, who was actually Alan J. Pakula's assistant on set and was with him in the edit and has some amazing stories to tell um, for folks who are listening to the show. So I won't spoil too much, but I think you nailed it so perceptively, Alex, as a writer and as a filmmaker is that this movie lives and dies by all the ways that it breaks those Goldman rules in a way, because it's about that rumination and giving those few extra seconds and giving those few extra moments and like allowing the scenes to breathe that for whatever reason actually helps speed up the story. Whereas, you know, John will talk about later and, and, and Alan's observations and hopefully other people along the way is that, you know, early cuts of this movie, when they were cutting this thing together, they had sort of trimmed, that they'd followed and adhered to the rules that you're talking about, you know, come in, like get out early, uh, like, you know, take the air out of this scene. Let's cut quickly between these shots. Whereas the, the, the shot rate and how sort of languidly each scene unfolds, um, even though there's sometimes a hard cut between the exterior and interior of a scene. Um, it's, I think that this whole movie is in all those spaces and, and these little natural bits. And so, yeah, it's one of those things like do as I say, not as I do moments because the, the, the text demands that you need to see the interior lives of these people. Cause otherwise it just doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, for sure. And you know, it's just kind of, but, but it's also the kind of writing that I love, which is put a character in the scene who has no line. Yes. Again, we're talking about Baltimore now, but like, I, I'm always now. I mean, only in the last couple of years have I realized how much fun it is to to do that because you kind of like step back and it's like, well, if they walk in. Like, here's like the 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 simplest version of this scene is Woodward and Bernstein walk in, and Bradley's just sitting there with a pencil in his hand, just writing. And then they walk in. He looks up and says, well, "What are you guys doing here?" Yes. And that's fine. That's perfectly valid. But then the, the, the passage that we've been belaboring and the sort of, you know, the sense of writing to it and the presence of, of another character who's just kind of there and then remains there is absolutely unnecessary <laughs> from a narrative standpoint, but 
creates the sense that like, you know, what is, what does Ben Bradley do? Well, he doesn't just sit and, you know, copy edit with a pencil in his hand all day. He, you know, has guys come in and they goof around and he's got his buddy who just kind of sits there and, you know, it's part of the color of the world of this newspaper, even though it has nothing to do with the actual narrative of the movie, it's better to see Bradley spending his day doing this than it is to just say, I don't know. He's just like circling stuff in like a, printout that somebody has given him to make edits on tomorrow's thing how calculating it is to go no i want balsam in this scene like in that moment seems to like break a rule and i think that that's a maybe like a 70s quality of movie that like you sometimes see these like 200 million dollar hollywood you know sometimes superhero spectacles and they feel like they don't have any people in them it feels like it's just got the actors it feels like a best barren stage play and it's like Oh, well, they're only got the people that they want in that scene in that moment. And it's like, there's something about a camaraderie of like, or like an authenticity. No, we've got to have him talking to someone. There's, you know, there's always people hovering around the editor's office all day. That's their job is to have people like hover, pester them, ask them questions, shoot the breeze with them, talk about, you know, a certain problem and then go off, but their doors revolving. So I think I, I love also what you're saying there around. It's like, it's authentic to the text, but also there's something about it that gives it I don't know. It's just that more lived in quality of every single part of it. And, and like you said, it's fun, fun for you to like have chaos, you know? Um, yeah. I, th- I think and it- you, you, and you, you tell me perhaps in the next minute or the one after that, he says or does something, but he doesn't right here. So if he does oh, eventually. Yeah. But Balsam has like, Balsam has like two words to, to the, uh, to the, the salesman guy. And that's about it in that whole minute. And the, he doesn't yeah. have any words to the boys. It's it's it, yeah, but maybe in the next one. In the next one, the he does. In the next, in the next one, he does. It's, it's possible. Yeah, it's possible. He he's about he's a lit fuse who's about to serve a narrative function. But for this minute, he does not. And even still, that's very it's very nice because again, the bad version of that is say he says something a minute later or two minutes later. The bad version is he just comes and sticks his head in and says. Um, Hey, you're, you're needed down here in editorial. And the good version is he's sitting there for two minutes and says nothing. And then finally somebody looks at him and goes, what do you think? And he goes, I think we should do it. And then you think, well, that's all you need. Absolutely. You don't, Absolutely. You, no, don't you, you don't, you don't need anything else. Yeah. But anyway, I feel like we've, yes, we've, we've belabored up until that point. Um, it's worth mentioning kind of here around, uh, you know, 31, 32, when the guys take a seat, uh, we do get kind of our final look at this kind of, at this, uh, pretty stunning bookshelf behind, you know, that, that you have to imagine Bradley sits there and stares at every day. I was staring, I was staring at it. I was staring at it in preparation for this minute as well going, God, that's a sturdy shelf. There's a lot of books on there. That's a lot of books. Yeah. On. But they're all different. Again, like the, the kind of, the kind of bad production design of an office would just be, you know, a shelf after shelf of encyclopedias or what is meant to be old research materials. Whereas this looks like thousands of nonfiction books and who knows what it's, it, everything is different. It looks like a bookshelf in a home. It doesn't look like an office uh, and it's coloring. And um, I, I'm also, you know, we can't, not mention the the hard hat behind Hoffman, which yes. is pretty visible until about you know the forty second mark. Initially, um, it's just a great thing that has no story. But again, like you look at it 
shot by shot. And it's like, well, at some point he was either reporting on or present at, you know, the, the ribbon cutting of a building, perhaps this very building, (laughs) or he was, you know, on some site and maybe, you know, he was given it and just brought it back and threw it up on the wall because it's a funny thing to have a yellow hard hat (laughs) in a newspaper room. And, and and also uh, it, it actually helped me make sense of something in the post. It's like, maybe it's the, when I saw this, I always was like, where the hell did that hard hat come from? What is it? Is it some kind of, you know, emergency evacuation thing that he as the editor carries? What is it? And and the only thing that I can think of maybe logically what it is, if it's not a totem or like a token that he's just kept from something is maybe it's like going down to the presses as the editor. Like you got to put a hard hat on. Maybe that's the sure. only thing that it could be, but it's, it's so funny. It's just like that one random object that you're like, this makes no sense, but I'm really enraptured that someone went to the detail of they've gone into Bradley's office, they've taken photos and they've gone, we need a hard hat because he's got one. And I don't even really understand why, but he's got it. Yeah. There, there, there's a story behind it that somebody between the cast and the, and the production design team came up with and we don't know and we don't need to know. No, Correct. So we're here, we're in this scene. Um, it's literally in the last 10 seconds that the guys are sort of outlining, you know, the government, uh, the the Congress is squashing this report that's going to come out uh, and, and, and critical information that has sort of led in their investigation up to this point in this sort of whole follow the money ethos is all going to grind to a halt because it's all going to be squashed. And then Bradley asks the yeah, question. Yeah, but even before, I mean, you know, we have, we have the line, uh, you know, around second 39 when Bernstein says a rat's nest of illegal shit. Yeah, yes, that's a good line. That, I mean, that's a, that's a real throwing down the sword kind of, you know, sentence to write and to sort of orient the audience to how serious this is. Yes, indeed. And but and and that's that's you're so right that there's that line when he says it. It's Robards then looking over to him and sort of going like, "What kind of illegal shit?" Like that. That's yeah. the line that actually gets the next question. So you well, know. that's that's again that's that's the that's the kind of the fun of of a of a peculiar minute is I have written down here. You know, at second twenty nine, and then again at second forty two, <laughs> we have we have Bradley saying, "Is there just two quick shots? Sit down and like what?" Yes. And his his shooting and his editing rhythms are so clean and so simple that, you know, a two second shot, I mean, you don't need to see somebody say like what, but when you've got Robards there and his feet up and he's reclining back and his uh, sleeves are rolled up, you know, it's the end of the day that that is even those two seconds and seeing his face and the register of his curiosity rat's nest of illegal shit like what you're like oh wow even bradley bradley seems concerned about this this must be real because this guy's seen it all yeah and the lines on there's something that there's something about actors and faces and you would know this working with some of the best right now elizabeth moss particularly is there's just something about the lines on someone's face that they, they just tell a story, like what that person's willing to put themselves through. And, and, and that quality on his face of like him saying like what and just the timber of his voice, um, there's just something about it that, like, again, just underscores that that's, that's the place you need to keep your focus, even though we haven't quite gotten to that with the boys yet. Like he's like, He's like what? Yeah, he's he's like what? Like you said, it, it like it, it rings like a you know like a bell. It's like like what? Well, it, it rings like a bell, but it's also 
it's also, you know, 25 seconds after he's just laughing, goofing around, <laughs> not thinking about anything like this. I mean, that's, yes. that's the, that's the thing about it here is that it's both, it's, it, it's its own thing, but it stands in sharp contrast to the day this guy was just having before these two reporters came in and completely altered his perception of this story that they're looking into and potentially the altered his perception of the functionality of the United States government and the president. Yes. Within 20 seconds. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Give that to the Chronicle. Who gives a crap? You know, like a barb and like, ah, oh, there's illegal shit going on with the elect. <laughs> Here we go. And then, yeah, I mean, and then after this, you know, from roughly from, from second 45 to, to 56, I mean, it's just, you know, 10, 10, 10 or so seconds of just crackerjack, you know, absolute volleys of language and exciting terminology, uh, slush, you know, a word like slush fund, which, you know, nobody knows what that means. Every, you know, no one, that's not a term that exists in like the American public conscious, but you hear it and you think, well, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. And it's, it, but uh, you were talking about William Goldman's writing, like Crackerjack is the perfect way to describe when Goldman's writing is doing all the things that you expect from it or that his reputation lives up to. It's like that these guys are bouncing around terms that aren't necessarily understood completely in what you're saying, but you're getting enough of the vibe of they're onto something, they're here. You, you do have your bearings to a certain extent, but if you don't quite, it doesn't matter. You know that they're onto something, they're here. And then what is great, we've gone you know, now essentially 54, 55 seconds into this minute. And after casual, relaxed, shooting the breeze, after a few things piquing his interest, the immovable object that is Jason Robards just pumps the brakes on this and and asks these guys to get serious. And it's the beginning of yeah. this, you know, it's 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 the beginning of this, like you don't you haven't come as far as you think you guys need to pull your socks up. And it's such a great it's a, it's a phenomenal, a phenomenal moment that we get to unpack together. Yeah, I mean I, I from fifty three to fifty six. He says, Where's the goddamn story? I mean, that's like a trailer line. That's <laughs> uh, as as massive of a line and a sort of slamming on the brakes, um, and saying to them, you know, and this is a great thing, a great kind of sentiment in uh, a journalist thriller or a legal thriller is when somebody's presenting uh, breadcrumbs and yes. somebody who's in power, uh, their editor or their attorney or whoever says, you don't have it yet. Yes. And that, you know, that means to the audience, like you want to believe that this is for real because I'm following my hero characters in the story. But for an, a character to say, you don't have it, where's the goddamn story? That means flesh fund, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and creeps not talking. Okay, well, that's, that's interesting. But that's, no, we, don't, that, we don't run that. That's not a story. Yes. That's, that's the beginning of something, but you don't have anything yet. And that, to me, is kind of the most exciting part, you know, earlier, about halfway through most of these movies, is the sense that, Somebody needs to have the integrity to say that certainly sounds like something. <laughs> and in modern, in modern terms, that information would be a tweet and an incendiary one that would really <laughs> shock people. Uh, you know, yes. there's a rat's nest deep of illegal shit, uh, of, of illegal shit at creep. What flush funds, hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's the tweet. What does that mean? And 
to have this guy say, you don't have it yet. You don't have the story. We don't know what this means is, is substantial and it's meaningful. And it sort of speaks to the kind of mythical editor reporter relationship that this movie has done more than it's part of continuing to uphold in the American imagination for 50 years. Um, it's just that you've got an editor who's going to drive, drive the reporters harder and farther to, to make sure that the thing is airtight, no matter how excited they are. And this is when you get scenes where they're like, we need to run this. And you have an editor who can say, we don't, we can't, we don't, it's not verified yet. It's not, it's not, it's not airtight. It's not airtight. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of the, the, that's the, that's like the myth of the American newspaper man that, you know, back to citizen Kane and, and we love it. We love to see it. And when it's Robards, we really, we really love it. I was just going to say, Alex, I think that uh, I think that you need you found yourself a role in isolation. If you if you finish a script or if you're bored, is just to we need to build you the gif of like where's the goddamn story or you don't have it. Just two two gifs with Jason Robards and you just go and commentate on incendiary tweets dropped by journalists. Where you're yeah, like, I don't, where? I don't, I'm not even I'm not on uh, I'm not on Twitter, so I have a lot of steps to go. But <laughs> yeah, but you know him, but that I mean anything that a, a gif just, of him saying where's the goddamn story could be a response to I believe as a non-Twitter user. Probably Probably eighty percent of tweets that pass, pass for journalism or news. Yes, uh, and and it's that I think that that's um, that's the rigor of this whole movie is in some of those things. And like you said, there's there's some characters and 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 and, and who perform a function in a script as much as a as a performance of like they they get the trailer lines, they get the and that and that elevated level of that editor or the 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 myth of the american editor that we want to believe in that's that roadbards is in is inhabiting here is you know i think as much as we go along with the cons- sort of and so easy to do in watergate uh, anything talking about watergate is that conspiratorial thinking it's like everything for those guys is fact based and sources and it's like sometimes these guys go on stretches of this movie where we get whipped up into little conspiracies and this person does this and just and and then it's such a refreshing sort of stabilizing mechanism for the whole movie that they come back to the newsroom and they go up against Bradley and Bradley's like, no, you don't have it. You still don't have it. Like you guys it's aren't true, there yeah. yet. It's, it's, it's actually, it's, it's, it's meaningful, meaningful. It's, it's sort of a funny, a funny, um, <clears throat> you know, kind of imaginary intertextual, uh, relationship between the very end of three days of the condor where yes. Redford comes out and says, I just went in and told them a story. And she goes, well, uh, what if they don't print it? He goes, they will. And you, in that movie, you go, yeah, of course they will. Because this whole story and the whole conspiracy, this all, he, he told them the right story. And then you imagine he just went in there and told it to Robard. And the second he walks out, they go, uh, where, where, we don't have it. We just have this <laughs> one guy telling us this, this crazy story. And yeah. the relationship, that kind of, you know, you can deploy that narratively in that movie where it ends with a bit of uncertainty, but the character believing my account of this is good enough. And then this movie where under no circumstances, do they ever think like uh, one account of what has happened is good enough. And and that's kind of the fun of it. I mean, that's again, like getting ready to do this. I've seen the movie many, many times. um, And just rereading the Wikipedia plot synopsis. Like this is a movie that anybody who's seen it once could tell you exactly what it's about. It's about, journalists investigating Watergate and bringing that to public attention. 
But nobody could remember what happens in this movie. And when I watch it for the 10th or 15th time, I do not remember what's about to happen. Yes. And I do not remember the, the details of the vast arsenal of supporting characters and the leads and the trails and this and that. But you can watch it with essentially no context other than I like this movie and I know how it ends because it is so unnecessarily dense with information that it not only is entertaining, but it's such a story to tell you that when you watch it every time, it's just one of those things, like a great crime movie, a great noir. You're like, I don't really remember how they get to this. (laughs) I just remember the, I just remember getting swept up in the excitement of watching our guys do it. It's, it's so funny that you said that is that it like, there's the details and, Maybe it's the pacing, maybe it's the gaps, maybe it's those quiet moments, but I, I think that that's where it's it's got that ability to keep surprising you. That's so hard. It's so hard to do in a journalism movie because everything is about expository explanation. You know, like it's 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 usually and then and then being able to deliver that information succinctly about the stages that the story goes. But yeah, it's it's so deeply satisfying. And I think you nailed it about a great noir or something like that. You don't remember all the details all the time. You don't remember all the machinations. You don't remember the side characters. You don't remember some of those folk, but they become, they only become memorable in rewatching and revisiting and coming back to it and like going, Oh God, you know, it's an even, even something silly in a comedy, like a, you know, I, I love the Coen brothers Fargo, one of my favorite films. And I, I always think about Chet Proudfoot. Like, there's not a day that goes by where I'm like, Chet Proudfoot, like, what's he up to? What's wh- How did they even come up with a character like Chet Proudfoot? Like, it's just that some of those ancillary characters come back and they jump out at you. But in this in this movie particularly, it's like, um, the, you, you don't, you remember the line. You remember where's the goddamn story. You, you can't remember him t- throwing a barb at the San Francisco Chronicle if you're just a passive viewer of this movie. No, but it's just, that's the sort of, you know, if there's the most American cinema in the seventies thing about this, that we can, you know, situate it with its peers in that decade. It's that kind of leisurely attitude towards writing and, and momentum is that movies get to be a little bit shaggier and a little bit looser, but they're in the service of this thing that's strictly classical. Um, again, like I said, you know, this is a newspaper film. This is a 40 year old genre at this point, 45 year old genre, but it gets to now have a little bit of new, a fresh coat of paint with the new tools of the era of writing and new styles of acting and a certain, you know, looser sense of morality and filmmaking, certainly, you know, by this point, very comfortably loose. And, and that's, kind of the magic ingredient that it becomes the thing that the 50 years on nearly is worth dissecting every which way. I think it's worth it. And I'm so glad that I got to talk to you about it. Alex Ross Perry, my friend, thank you so much for being a part of all the president's minutes. It's been a treat to talk to you and to unpack it. And uh, I've loved, um, I, I don't, so often in the minutes we sort of get caught on different things, but I've really relished you unpacking it from a function perspective and, and your filmmaking mind. It's been so cool. And uh, I just want to say thank you so much for your time in the middle of a pandemic to, to join me for this. I just want to say a huge, uh, huge thank you. Well, I certainly have yeah, plenty of time these days and I appreciate <laughs> um, the invitation and I, 
I, I just wanted to uh, uphold the standard of the project. And that, seems, <laughs> that, that seems like the goal. And, you know, obviously, I mean, we could, we could talk for, and uh, you could talk for another hour about any, any part of this movie. Yeah, and and we have <laughs> and we do and I think that that's that what I think is about these true un, unbridled masterpieces and um, as some of these projects that we're diving in especially minute by minute I just think that during the scrutiny of each each section of the movie I don't I'm never disheartened I'm always more charged up um, to and, and passionate about the quality of the movie that it continues to up it continues to raise in my conception with every viewing because it's just stands up to the scrutiny and with every new minute contextualizing the whole tone and, 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 and tempo of the whole, of the whole film. Uh, I just, it, it gets me excited. So it's great to talk to you. Well, that's saying to hear, and I would encourage, you know, people who are excited by this film, which of course everybody always has been, you know, I don't really think, I mean, I haven't seen every one of his films and I assume some of them, are less than masterpieces, but I, I would really encourage people to take very seriously the sort of clean, intelligent filmmaking of his work as a whole. And I really do stand for the nineties the run. I think that uh, Pelican Brief is something that we were just recently talking about rewatching, which I, I, that really does feel like the spiritual sequel to this movie in his mind. And that him 20 years later, making an investigation movie using the tools of 90s thrillers and to me is as fine of an example of, of that as, as all the president's men is of what it is and um yeah that and presumed innocent i i really Love you know I, I would innocent. encourage people to to yeah. not 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 uh, not overlook or or underrate his his body of work wow that was the incredible writer director filmmaker alex ross perry alex thank you so much if you are listening again through uh to this conversation for being so game and for being uh just one of the best players at the the scrutiny of this minute format it was an absolute treat to talk to you guys alex isn't on socials so the best place that you can find him is in his movies queen of earth her smell golden exits uh, i mean the list does most certainly go on. Um, he's also an accomplished writer with a couple of things in production right now. And obviously based on everything that's going on, you're not going to see that now, but I would strongly recommend Queen of Earth and I would strongly recommend Her Smell to Lizzie Moss greats while Lizzie Moss is crushing it in, in The Invisible Man and Shirley in 2020. Guys, thank you so much for listening to all the President's Minutes. It's been a treat. We are now an hour into this movie. It is so awesome to have achieved uh, another hour of a minute project with you guys um i really appreciate it if you want to support the show we just love you to share it around please uh to folks who you think will enjoy this sort of cross-sectional discussion on cinema on politics on movies on journalism um or we'd really appreciate it but we are doing a lot of things at one heat minute productions we have miami nice which is on hiatus we have increment vice which is barreling towards home right now more than uh, an hour into the film um, getting to the business end of that one with our host Travis Woods we've got the past episodes of One Heat Minute last 12 minutes of the Mohicans Josie and the podcast so much and uh, if you can uh, and you've got some cash and you're you know getting back to work in this uh, crisis there is a donation link or patreon.com forward slash 
One Heat Minute Productions. Thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you on another episode soon.